So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are excited to be joined by Paolo Tedesco, who teaches history at the University of Tübingen. Did I pronounce that correctly, Paolo? Tübingen. Tübingen, okay. Okay, thanks. His main research interests include the social and economic history of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, comparative agrarian history, and the fate of the peasantry across different types of societies and historical materialism. Welcome to the show, Paolo. Thanks for inviting me, uh, Lev, and thanks for uh, organizing this uh, uh, interview. You're very welcome. I'm excited to talk because I teach a 10th grade global history class. And in that class, I've got to describe the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And I never feel all that confident with the story that I'm telling the 14 and 15 year old kids. So I'm, I'm really hoping for some clarity today. You wrote a, an article recently for Jacobin Magazine entitled How Marxists View the Middle Ages. Maybe we could start with the way that Marx himself saw pre-capitalist society. And then we're going to discuss after that, I want to talk to you about the way that Marxists who came after Marx maybe corrected that, that vision a little bit. So let's start with, with Marx. Yes, yes, obviously we should start from uh, Marx. Uh, actually, we should say immediately that Marx, uh, he was not really interested in the pre-capitalist societies because his main interest was to try to study the development of capitalism and uh, its evolution across time and eventually its transformation in the uh, next stage, which Marx uh, um, envisaged as uh, socialism. Of course, in order to describe the main characteristic of capitalism, uh, which was a process still in progress when Marx was writing in the middle of the 19th century, uh, he had to mm, describe uh, at least uh, the pre-modern societies. Of course, Marx has uh, mm, very few sources at his disposal at the time, um, much meager than when we, ha we have now, because the uh, archaeology was not really developed, and uh, there are not uh, uh, such huge exchange with these scholars uh, across the world as, as it is now. Uh, there, there was not what we now call the so-called global history. And uh, so I had to rely on uh, mainly um, European, uh, on the main language of uh, uh, European scholarships. So books uh, written in English, German, French, and other uh, European language, in order to try to get an idea of what happened across the world in the actually uh, almost uh, two, mil uh, two millennia before it was describing uh, the advent of capitalism. It was uh, a very complicated uh, operation. And, uh, and for this reason, uh, Marx tried to um, build up an history uh, organizing stages, which was very uh, uh, um, um, common at the time, try to explain history uh, uh, using this, this idea of cycle of stages. And then divine history is uh, in, uh, I would say, to simplify, uh, uh, 
um, four, four main stages, uh, excluding the, the, the future of socialism. So a primitive uh, uh, commune condition, an ancient period which he characterized as dominated by slavery, the period of feudalism, which was co uh, characterized by the predominance of landlords and, and, and serfdom, and then from feudalism, he moved to capitalism in order to explain the main characteristic of the industrial society, in, um, in, in particular in Europe. Of course, uh, um, all these societies that Marx was describing, uh, they are mostly based on uh, European experience, because the majority of literature that Marx was, was uh, consulting was written by European scholars about Europe or European scholars looking at the history of the continent, China, India, rarely Africa, from an European perspective. So uh, judging the history of the countries according to the category we normally uh, we apply to uh, uh, European history. And uh, this, of course, uh, creates a very complicated mix of definition. The actually uh, modern scholarship discovered to be for the most part, false and extremely Eurocentric. But of course, it was not Marx's uh, fault, was the, the, um, the level, the advance of the studies at the middle of the 19th century. I guess my first question is, does Marx at least get the European story correct? Yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a very good question. Thanks for, for, for um, highlighting this point. Um, not completely uh, uh, um, right, of course, uh, because uh, uh, even looking at the European university, uh, uh, sorry, European history, sorry, uh, it tried to apply this um, category of uh, slave society, uh, society based on serfdom and then capitalism and wage labor in a very rigid way. Successive studies have actually discovered that the, 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 this category they could not be applied with the same simplicity and uh, um, chronology that Mark used. But of course, this is related to the, the, the point I emphasized uh, early on. The fact that Marx was not really interested to explain this period. He wanted just to create a framework in order to explain the advent of capitalism in the, in the, in the, 19th, in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. he, he, has, um, he needs actually something in order to see that capitalism was uh, characterized by uh, a new uh, uh, a revolutionary economic system, mostly based on wage labor. In order to emphasize the novelty, novelty of wage labor, I have, he had to say that the previous system were based on other system of, of, of labor exploitation. And then uh, slavery and serfdom, they are extremely helpful in order to clarify this, this concept, even though mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, the, the reality was not so uh, neat as Marx tried to, 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 to present in his, in his studies. Yeah, Paolo, that, I want to just actually take a step back. Maybe you could define for all of us what serfdom is. What, sorry? Surf, what huh? is serfdom, yeah. And what, and yeah, what is okay. feudalism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, because slavery is clear. Slavery is a, is a, is a neat category when uh, a subject is completely deprived of his, his um, legal status of, of freedom. 
Uh, serfdom is a much complicated category uh, because it's, uh, it's, um, it's um, uh, a not so clear limitation of uh, the freedom of a subject. It is not related in a personal relationship between the, uh, the landlords, so the, 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 uh, um, the owner of the means of production, and uh, the, the peasants normally work the land of the landlord. Uh, there is, uh, uh, um, uh, in some way, an, an economic relation with, on which uh, serfdom is based, but also this uh, economic relation is legitimated by a set of law that could be customary or uh, enforced by the state, which actually legitimize the power of the landlords on the surf, uh, the, the unserved peasants. Of course, it's, uh, uh, what I have said so far is applied to what we know about the evolution of serfdom in Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, where we have a lot amount of sources, um, in particular uh, uh, written sources, legal uh, and documentary, which explain this, um, this, uh, this particular uh, relationship, legal and sometimes economic relationship. Uh, there are different forms of serfdom in, uh, in other countries, in Eurasia, in Africa, which uh, uh, are not, they don't con uh, overlap. Uh, precisely with the definition I have uh, given so far. So it's it's a very um, uh, difficult category to apply overall uh, across the entire uh, world. They need to be specified through to, uh, empirical description of each uh, uh, historical situation. I understand. Just another question, though, about the European context then. Yeah. Who has given? Who are these lords? Who has given them this land, or have they purchased this land? Okay, landlords, uh, uh, landowners existed in every time, everywhere. In uh, the early Middle Age and uh, in the Middle Age in general, there are powerful people. They actually profited by the weakness of the public power of the state, in particular after the fall of the Roman Empire, and appropriate immense, large quantity of land in different parts of Europe, particularly Western Europe. And, uh, and, this, uh, and um, um, they start to develop private powers, not just on the land, but also on the population living on the land. And from this derived the relation I have described uh, before. Normally, there is a, a certain degree of continuity between big landowners living under the Roman Empire and uh, in some way legitimated and facilitated by the imperial infrastructure and those who survived the fall of the Roman Empire and they continue to... Um, uh, actually serve as landlords in, 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 the, in the early Middle Age. Uh, there are, of course, discontinuity in terms of the framework in which uh, these uh, landlords operated and uh, expand eventually their, uh, their possession. The big expansion of, of the landowning ship, it didn't happen 
just after uh, the, the fall of the Roman Empire, but later uh, in the 8th, 9th century. So in, uh, in a period that would normally we define the central uh, Middle Age. Um, these are the main characteristics of this, uh, these people, even though, of course, there are um, many characterizations depending on the regional area. I see. And so my understanding is that Perry Anderson writes a kind of a seminal book called Passages, which helps maybe we should say improve upon the Marxist narrative. Can you talk about the importance of that work? Yes, yes, because um, Perry Anderson transition from uh, the, the ancient world to feudalism is a kind of masterpiece in, uh, of the Marxist historiography. Uh, it was written in the, in the 70s, in the 1974, and it was the first synthesis of all uh, the different mode uh, of production, so formal economic organization, which precede uh, the advent of capitalism uh, by a, a, Marxist, a Marxist scholar. And, um, and actually, Perry Anderson was the first one to try to explain in very clear manner uh, with a, a very detailed description of the different uh, processes, uh, how society uh, uh, dominated by slavery moved to a society dominated by landlords and serfs. As, as Perry Anderson admitted in the introduction of this wonderful book, still wonderful book in order to understand some of the basic uh, uh, future of Marxist historiography, uh, was that the, the, his, his study was entirely based on uh, European sources and the study of the European history. Even though in the in the last part of the in the second part of the book, when he moved to uh, describe the different future of the feudal society, he make a, an important di distinction between Western Europe and Eastern Europe and the different evolution of this part of the continent. And why he is playing? Uh, uh, Western Europe uh, allowed the transition from feudalism to capitalism, when actually, on, on, on the contrary, in Eastern Europe, this doesn't, uh, didn't happen. Right. So maybe you could get into some of those details. What are the, what is the why? And then talk to me a little about his understanding of the history of wage labor, if you could. Okay. So... The history of wage labor was uh, uh, one of uh, on the, on the most important uh, factor. They actually, as I said before, moved Marx to try to explain uh, the singularity of capitalism and the abdomen of capitalism in the, in the, in the, in the 19th uh, century. Because Marx, all his followers after him, actually until the late 70s, believe that the main characteristic of the capitalist economic organization was the presence of wage labor. So just in capitalism, uh, the capitalist, so the people that who had the possession, the physical and juridical possession of the means of production, were able to um, extract, to appropriate surplus labor from the laborers, actually paying a salary which was inferior to the work that the laborers has done in favor of the capitalist. It was the main, the main uh, significance of this, uh, of this uh, um, uh, um, 
concept of wage labor. When, when we are talking about uh, slaves and serfs, all the work was appropriated by landlords, was appropriated through uh, the legal exploitation of these people, not through an economic system that allow actually to extract, uh, extract uh, profit. And um, as I said, until the, the late 70s, uh, the majority of historians, um, but also economists, uh, continue to divide the world uh, uh, from uh, capitalist and pre-capitalist on the basis of, uh, of the presence of wage labor or not. Only in the, uh, from the late 70s, in this, uh, uh, with the study of uh, Chris Wickham, John Holden, and Charles Panagi, we start to understand that the real distinction between the, the pre-capitalist world and uh, the capitalist mode of production was not based on the presence or not of wage labor. Because actually wage labor, as we know it in the contemporary society, was also present, actually quite widespread in many pre-modern societies and across the entire world, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in different, in different configuration, of course, but was very, very common. And then could be not taken as uh, uh, the crucial point to distinguish between two uh, different uh, economic systems. Of course, in the three authors I have uh, mentioned, um, the, the, the function, uh, the significance of wage lab labor has a, a different weight, which we can maybe try to uh, yes. yeah, explain individually, author by author. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. So just to be clear, though, I mean, for my, well, my big question is, from the perspective of the landowners, why move to wage labor? Why not just expropriate everything? In other yes. words, like you've got this situation with slavery where you have complete control over what you, you steal yes. from labor and under feudalism, pretty much complete control. So why why move to surplus value? Why not just take it all? Be because um, even in, 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 the, in the ancient world, not always slavery as we meant slavery in the modern world, chattel slavery, was uh, economically or institutionally uh, possible, or sometimes also in terms of uh, supply possible. There are many situations in which it was more uh, convenient, I use a very simplified term, uh, to simply lease out land to uh, peasant, even unfree peasant, rather than organize them in a slave plantation which required a series of arrangements that not all the landlords were able to implement or want to implement. Um, for instance, if we base, uh, um, so if we look at the period be, uh, late antiquity, so the century from the fourth to the seventh, we know there are a lot of slaves, so people deprived of uh, the legal freedom. But when we look at the organization of labor in agriculture, the majority of these slaves, they are not organized in plantation like we will, found, we will find in um, Southern uh, uh, United States in um, uh, um, pre-Civil War period 
or in the Caribbean area, Haiti or Jamaica or in Brazil in the 19th century. But we will find these slaves working as um, um, unfree tenants on the property of the landlords, which just collect rent from these uh, slave peasants. And uh, actually, they treat them like, from an economic perspective, like normal peasants rather than slaves. Can I just ask, what is the form of the rent? Is it produce or is it money that the peasants have been able to get yeah, for their... Yeah, Yeah. this is a crucial, another crucial question. In, in the past, there was... So in the, in the, in the past historiography, I'm... I'm referring to the historiography mm-hmm. uh, until the 70s, even 80s maybe, um, there was always an attempt to define the general economy of a period, of a region, looking at the type of rent that the landlords uh, collect from peasants. If they collect uh, peasant uh, rent in kinds, the uh, uh, the implication was that we are in a context of uh, natural economy with uh, a small amount of exchange uh, in some time a, a self-sufficient or closed economy. If they were able to collect uh, money, there was the implication, of course, that then the peasants, the, they were accessing to the market in order to earn this money. And then... Uh, um, um, we are in a context of a market economy. Okay, these assumptions are correct, but they are not sufficient in order to give to rents this uh, uh, transitional value. In the entire ancient period, in the Middle Age, we are able to observe empirically the landlord can collect renting kinds or renting cash according to their need specific situation. Of course, the request of kind of produce, agrarian produce, normally grain, wine, oil, or uh, uh, money, usually gold, um, of course, could generate, uh, generate uh, differences in terms of uh, uh, the local economies. But it doesn't create really transition to another system of production. This is another big achievement that the late studies of Marxist have uh, acquired. So don't give uh, um, uh, a, a particular significance to the present of money, just as to the present of wage labor. In order to- <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so it's not about wages and it's not about the significance of you know, in-kind versus money. Now yeah. we got to get into like what then what does mark the difference? So maybe the, the best thing to do is to talk about Chris Wickman. What what does he contribute? Yeah, his is his uh, big contribution is uh, is to have actually um, abandoned completely the idea that the transition from uh, uh, the ancient classical uh, period to the Middle Age was based on on the transition from slaves to slave labor to serfdom. So he was, was no longer looking to, um, to uh, the regime of labor organization. organization. 
but was looking at how the ruling elite was collecting wealth surplus production from peasants, so the producing population. In the pre-modern world, 90% of the population is, is uh, formed by peasants. So what is interesting to Wickham as to other scholars is to see how the ruling elite collects wealth from this majority of producers. And then Wickham studying empirically the distinction between the late Roman Empire and uh, the political formation in the early Middle East, not just in Europe, but also in Northern Africa or in the Middle East, he observed that the real distinction was a transition uh, from a state organized on, uh, on, the, extraction, on the extraction of uh, taxes to uh, a society dominated by local power represented, as I said before, by landowners, that actually uh, collect the greater part, not all the, the part, but the greater part of the, 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 the wealth in, in, in form of rents. They could be in kind or in money according to uh, the local situation and the period that we are analyzing. So the big point uh, that we can emphasize is uh, how the people, they are the top of society, no matter what, what society we are talking about, they are appropriating surplus wealth from the rest of the majority of the population. And then it's a big distinction is no longer between slave, slavery and serfdom, but between tax, which obviously required the presence of a state, and rent, they normally required the presence of the private lenders acting for their own profit. This was uh, the, the, the main capstone of, uh, of uh, Wickham, uh, Wickham reconstruction. It actually, for him, transition was based on, on these two uh, categories. Uh, of course, Wickham, as, as, as a medievalist, is less interested to see the other transition, so the, the transition from feudalism to capitalism. But of course, this was already the base in order to reject uh, the, the explanation based on labor regime. Okay, and then John Halden, how does he change the story? Halden, okay, I, I, I have to, to, to clarify. Yeah. Uh, in in uh, mm, in broader term, uh, Haldom and Wickham they use the same uh, uh, I would say uh, interpretative categories. There is just a distinction between the two. So they are both looking at the evolution in society from the perspective of the relationship between uh, the elite, the ruling elite, and the people they are producing the surplus. Wickham, as I said. So I uh, see actually a big distinction within state organization and landlord organization. So the central, the centralized power of the state and uh, the localized power of the landlords. For Holdom, on the other hand, the system of surplus appropriation is the same. It could be tax or rent, 
but there is not a big distinction between these two societies. And then instead to characterize uh, uh, the old period that I'm talking about, so the fifth millennium in order to simplify, he, he doesn't use the, dis the distinction between um, uh, the tributary society of the ancient world or the tax society, one what would like to use this, and the feudal society of the medieval period. He preferred to um, actually um, describe the entire period in terms of tributary society, because the encompassing characteristic of this whole period is there existed a ruling elite is collecting surplus value, so, so agrarian surplus in whatever form, from a majority of peasants working uh, the land. Uh, this surplus, uh, this agrarian surplus could be collected via taxation, via rents, or via labor. It doesn't matter this distinction. Of course, this implies a, ses, a, series, a series of, of juridical distinction of how these different devices and arrangements were used. But there is no distinction as they term this in terms of mode of production. So it's, it's, it's a tiny distinction between the two, but this is relevant in order to understand that the concept of transition is, is useful as a less uh, in, a, in, a, in one context or in another. Uh, but the conceptual framework is the same. There is always the idea that uh, um, uh, the ruling elite were, was using extra economic means of coercion in order to collect agrarian surplus from, them, from the producing population. Sorry, just if you could very quickly, what is the major difference in their, in their understanding of the pre-capitalist world then? Is it is it that Whitman sees a distinction between state and landlord and Halden doesn't, or am I confusing things? No, 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 it's, it's, it's correct. So the, the, uh, for both, uh, um, the difference is just conceptual. Uh, one, uh, Chris Wiggum is dividing between a mode of production based on uh, tributary extraction, so based on the state activity and the centralization of power, and a feudal system in which our local power, normally represented by peasants, uh, by landlords, we actually uh, dominate the local economy. Uh, for all of them, there is no distinction between uh, these two forms of, 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 of uh, collecting resources. Mm -hmm. The distinct, in terms of mode of production, they call it all the, the, the system uh, tributary mode of production. I see. When, when he moved to describe the local society, he made the same differences that Wickham does, but in uh, legal, institutional, or juridical terms. So this, this is an important distinction in, in, in all the characterization of these societies, mm -hmm. uh, because this allowed him to use uh, for instance, the concept of peasant society of uh, nomadic organization as a subgroup of the big uh, category of uh, tributary societies. I see. Th yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And so then that seems to be quite distinct from our next historian, Jaris Banerjee, who is yeah, talking yeah. about the move to commercial capitalism. So let's yeah, maybe yeah. talk about him. Yeah, because so far, all the, the two theories I have described, they are mostly focusing 
on, as I said many times, on extra-economic coercion. So there is a power, could be the state or, or, or the landlords, that simply collect agrarian surplus for their taxpayer or from the um, dependent peasants. There is no real exchange. There is no commercialization. But we know from, uh, from our empirical uh, uh, investigation that not all the agrarian surplus or the labor was exchanged, was, was actually transferred by via tax or via rent. There are a large part of this, we not quantify because we have no data from the pre-modern pre period, which is a pre-statistic period, but we know that a lot amount of gra uh, grain, uh, wine, oil, um, spices, uh, whatever, was transferred simply by commerce, by exchange. This uh, is, uh, is marginal in the, in the big construction uh, of Wickham and Oldham, because they are concentrating on uh, uh, state landlords and their relation with peasants. In Banaji, actually, uh, the exchange, the commercialization, acquired a predominant uh, um, function significance. And then, of course, um, all the category they have explained so far need to be uh, uh, retained, to be retold in a different way. Because Banaji doesn't use uh, the traditional uh, um, narrative of transition from a mode of production of to another, whatever the, we, want, we want to call this mode of production. But I just see, Panagi, see a big distinction between the uh, capitalist mode of production, so the revolutionary economic system, which dominated the last two centuries of our era, very diversified system of historical capitalism was present in the pre-modern world, which actually contain all the elements that have been described by Wickham and Oldham, but also a large amount of economic activities um, carried out by um, merchants, or in general, economic tactics, then uh, transfer, exchange wealth by commerce, by, by uh, um, other type of economic cooperation, credit and debit, um, um, borrowing money, um, whatever activity that we also we find in, 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 the modern, in, modern, in the modern society. So the, the, the landscape of uh, um, economic interaction is much is wider than the one characterized by the transfer of agrarian surplus via tax and rent, but include also the other, the all these other means. And of course, include also um, many other actors. They are not closely associated with the state infrastructure or with the class of uh, landowners. Is um, uh, uh, the category, uh, 
the interpretative category used by Jaros uh, Baragi, it's, it's, it's very difficult to be explained because it's, it's very uh, broad. It actually, uh, I have a lot to talk with him about this, uh, with this point. Uh, he, he always suggests don't use as a, a substitute, substitute category for, for the tributary or the individual mode, but actually, uh, as an empirical tool in order to describe the ed economic activity in the, in the, in the, uh, before the advent of the uh, capitalist uh, mode of, of production. That um, Banaji, differently from other, many other working on, the, on, 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 on capitalism, uh, actually located not in connection Within that, in, in the 60, uh, late 60th century or the 7th century, or in connection with the Industrial Revolution. But in the late 19th century, actually after Marx finished his work, actually uh, Banaji uh, wrote in some of his work uh, that Marx uh, has not yet seen the real effect of. Uh, the capitalist mode of production of society, because of course he died in uh, 1883, when uh, uh, Banaji argues that the real effect, the real impact of the connection between uh, the organization of capitalist mode of, of production, the expansion of colonial empire and imperialism, they actually mm, overlap and create a new system that that Marx was normally describing the society in the 50s of the 19th century has not yet seen. So this is and this, new, and this new system is a capitalist system, but Marx is not describing yet capitalism. No, yeah, exactly. This is what Banaji argues. So uh, uh, Marx, uh, Marx is still looking at how how the textile production in England. Uh, uh, functioning, which could be a simple manifestation of the historical capitalism, but is not yet looking at the combination of power of industry and uh, uh, the backup by the state, the national state, like England, France, uh, later United States, to this form of capitalism in order to expand this model in um, the non-European, non-Western world. And then uh, in this in this context, in this landscape, uh, we can really see the effect of the capitalist mode of production, the exploitation of labor in, in various forms. So the combination of, of wage labor and gentleman labor, formal slavery, they actually persisted in most of the world until the mid of, of the 20th centuries. Uh, in regime, they are, uh, manifestly capitalist. Yeah. Uh, this is the, 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 the main um, strength and novelty of uh, Jaros Banaji's uh, um, idea, uh, which of course um, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a little more, more, more difficult to categorize, to offer a chronology yeah. for, uh, in particular, the pre 19th century world. Well, so what, what I'm a little bit confused about yeah. still is what, for him, 
for Banerjee, what marks capitalism and what distinguishes that from a pre-capitalist system? In other words, I understand that he's saying that Marx is describing, he's still describing to some extent a world in which there's widespread slavery and feudalism. And so it's not really capitalism, but then what is capitalism? Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks thanks for, for, for alighting this, uh, this, this point, which is important. Uh, okay, when he's describing the capitalism, uh, so the, mm, the economic organization that precede the advent of the capitalism mode of production uh, is, is making an important uh, assumption based on Marx's work, actually. Uh, so the idea that actually we have capitalism, even in the pre-modern society, when there is uh, a combination between uh, um, production and circulation to 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 say more uh, in simple way uh, to put it simply uh, when actually the producer it could be the landlords became also merchants or the merchants became also producer and there is us this uh, uh, combination between two, these two economic worlds normally are completely separated in the world described by Holden mm-hmm. and William. Mm-hmm. But now, with this combination, what would what, what happen? Um, normally, these this landlords, uh, if they are direct connection with um, circulation of produce, they are also. Uh, have the power to control the quantity, the quality of the production that they want to deliver to the market. There is a a different uh, caution, capability to influence the two uh, uh, stage of economic change. Normally, when these two phases divide, this is not possible. Right, but so my question is, this exists for Banaji in the pre-modern world, when do we cross this threshold where he says, okay, well, now, you know, 80% of the producers are merchants or merchants are producers. I mean, what is the threshold where he says, okay, this is now capitalism, but it wasn't quite capitalism before? No, I, I think that the, in, in Banaji, it's, it, mm, sometimes it's, it's a little bit opaque when he tried to, to describe this, this, this transition. But as, as I said before, he saw the, 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 the distinction in the late 90s. And uh, from what I understand, one of, of the most important features that characterize the, I would not use the word transition because it's not the right word. But uh, what um, uh, Banaji says, the different trajectories from uh, historical capitalism, so the varieties of capitalism, to a unique sing- uh, single mode of production is normally related to the presence of the state in this activity, in particular the nation state. This is the real the real. Uh, the real distinction because when he was analyzing for instance um, the islamic uh, commercial activity in the 10th 11th century where we have uh, um, important manifestation of uh, 
um, economic expansion with the conquest of a large amount of markets, not just in the Mediterranean, but also in the Indian Ocean, uh, Banaji actually observed, yeah, this is merchants are really important. But when we see merchants operating in this context, we see that the state, so the Islamic tributary state, is always external to this activity. He never back up this activity. This was similar for the, the, the mercantile city-state from Italian peninsula in the, in the late Middle Age and early Renaissance, where, of course, the state has a rule, but has not the capability of the state nature of the late 19th century, which actually allowed to export this economic system in other country and start to expropriate sucrus from this country according to this new mode, this revolutionary mode called um, capitalism, uh, called Banaji. Sometimes Banaji make, uh, uh, um, I am not following him on, on all this, this, of course, because uh, uh, it's, it's quite late as period, but uh, in order to, to clarify, is making an equation between uh, capitalist mode of production and imperialism. So there are two categories that in Banaji conception, they often overlap. I see. And so what's so interesting as I'm listening to you talk is that all of this understanding of capitalism being independent from the state, or like, you know, like if you think of Smith's version of capitalism, it, it's not real capitalism because you actually need the state to, to be capitalist, to have a capitalist world order. And in Banerjee's idea or conception, it's you need the state to imperialize. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, uh, I think Banerjee's idea comes from uh, a very uh, deep observation of the empirical evolution of uh, the contemporary capitalism because uh, he has studied a lot the, the, the evolution of uh, capitalism in India and uh, observed probably the, the, the rule of the state, the central state in India in the different uh, area. Uh, how substantially all the Indian entrepreneurs needed the backup of the state in order to expand, improve the economic activity, they were mostly based on also the exploitation of the ecological resources of the country. It would be impossible without the, 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 yeah. the, the pickup. The same, uh, uh, the same uh, um, analysis could be uh, probably done for China to some extent, and uh, of course for Russia. Uh, I think the Banaji is particularly looking at, 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 at this uh, huge Eurasian experience rather than the traditional uh, um, uh, observation of development of capitalism in England and the United States in, in, the, in, the, late, in the 19th century. So this will be the final question. Thank you, Paolo. Um, that's very clear. This will be the final question. Um, Oftentimes when our students present their work and they do in our school kind of a thesis defense for graduation, we ask them, what is it about your own work, the research that you've done that you are, that you still have questions about, that if you had infinite resources and infinite time that you would, you would go explore because you don't fully understand at this point 
I want to ask you about your own work. What is it that you that you still have questions about that maybe sometimes people have read your work and they, they say, yeah, well, what about this? And you don't feel like you have the, the strongest answer. Oh, wow. <laughs> of course, there is a lot of question I have. No? Mm -hmm. I have no strong answer. Um, I would say, but this is a, is a, positive, a positive achievement, achievement for, in particular from the promoter period. So the, the, the first millennium, probably also the, 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 the first half of the second millennium, so the, 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 the centuries I know better. Um, it's extremely hard to present uh, um, history in uh, an evolutionary way. So to, to try to describe the course of history as a linear development from a stage to another. Yeah. And I think that this is a very good achievement. We should not do this. Because history is not this. Like, it's not like that. So uh, we should try to abandon uh, the study of the past uh, closely associated to the uh, aim to demonstrate the present situation. Of course, this creates a problem to historians like me they have to try to define this period and to create a synthesis. So to, to make a synthesis, uh, to elaborate categories from the Pramodis period is extremely hard because it's characterized by varieties. And uh, when people ask me, okay, how do you define this, 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 uh, uh, this period? Uh, of course, I always uh, emphasize Okay, are you referring to this area in this specific century uh, or mm -hmm. in specific year? So what, what is important is try to don't conflate the premodern period in a, a one single box. It try to find a key to explain the history of this millennia uh, with the simple categories they are useful just for 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 our for for our uh, time so um, uh, i think the the, the crooks that i have is is is, a, is this um, to explain the varieties but it's a, it's, a, it's a positive achievement it's a very nice um, challenge that we have and that we we should continue to pursue this this uh, empirical approach to history rather than uh, to uh, give just very simple generic uh, explanation from uh, a Western perspective.